Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the words and nerds podcast on this podcast we chat about books the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world i'm your host danny b kathy reich's first novel deja dead catapulted her to fame when it became a new york times bestseller and won the 1997 ellis award for best first novel dr reich's was also a producer of the hit fox tv series bones which is based on her work and her novels from teaching fbi agents how to detect and recover human remains to separating and identifying commingled body parts in her montreal lab a forensic anthropologist kathy reich's has brought her own dramatic work experience to her mesmerizing forensic thrillers. Kathy is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of North Carolina and now today we're going to talk about her book The Bone Code. Welcome Kathy, that is very impressive bio. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for your time. Now I know it's 11 p.m here in Sydney and 9 a.m where you are. Where are you beaming in from Kathy? I am in Charlotte, North Carolina right now. Wow. Can we start with the bone code, which I just loved. I thought it was a fascinating story. Can you give us an elevator pitch as to what this book is about? Oh, my goodness. Um, I did a lot of research on the human genome, and we now have the entire human genome mapped, and we have tools to edit it. And the wow. uh, genetics communities pretty much agreed we're not going to use those tools to create designer babies. Well, I read an article about a Chinese doctor who went ahead and did that. He altered the genome of two unborn little baby girls. So that got me thinking, um, what if someone did that for less than honorable reasons? So that's kind of a theme that runs through the book, genetics and the power of genetics, the power of DNA. The story starts out where Tempe has just survived a hurricane 
And uh, her friend Anne has asked her to please come down to South Carolina near Charleston to help because she has had some damage to her beach house. So Tempe gets in the car, she bundles up Bertie, they head down there and she's just barely crossed into Charleston County when the coroner calls her to ask with help with a case. A medical waste container has been tossed ashore by the hurricane and in it are two bodies. So Tempe reluctantly agrees to help with this. And as she's helping in the autopsy, she's noticing details that are disturbingly similar to a case she worked in Quebec 15 years earlier. And that leads into the main storyline. Absolutely fascinating. And there's so much, um, when you start getting into the the DNA and editing the DNA, um, there's just such moral ambiguity when you get to that point, don't you? And I feel like you know, as a, as a professor and a writer, how do these worlds collide? Because as a professor, you're probably very ethical and making these ethical decision-making, make uh, decisions, but in a book, you can do whatever you like. So how do these worlds collide for you? And then that interests me when we develop technologies that are far in advance of legislation to regulate them, whether it's in, you know, reproduction, we can create babies from sperm and egg and, you know, what are the rules governing who can do that, who can destroy eggs that have been preserved, that kind. So when that interests me, when we don't fully have the regulation to control a technology. So Mm. yeah, you're right. And then, then you must rely on ethical decisions. And what if someone just jumps ahead and decides to do something anyway? Yeah, it is really fascinating. And I'm sure there are there are positive things to being able to edit DNA. And I'm imagining that's to do with um, diseases or things that are inherited. So I assume that is what the technology is for, not for your designer babies. Exactly. And that's what this Chinese doctor was doing. He was altering the genome of these two babies so that they could not get, um, I'm blanking, AIDS, I believe that it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very fascinating. Now, I'm really interested about your career path as you know, a professor and a writer, and I want to know, have these two things always been concurrent in your life, or were you the scientist first and then writing came later, or are they two things that have always married together for you? I've always been a scientist uh, ever since I finished my doctorate, um, but you have to write, so yeah. you always you know, have to have those skills. I had never tried creative writing. I had never tried fiction. You know, maybe in my resume or something, (laughs) but I'd never really tried fiction. So um, that's really when I made a departure from, you know, writing scientific articles, writing journal articles, textbooks. I had done that. So I made full professor at the university and I was free to do, you know, pretty much whatever I wanted to do. And uh, this is back in the 90s. And um, I had just finished working on a serial murder case, which had some very interesting elements to it. The case was completed. Trial was completed. The gentleman was convicted of three counts of uh, first degree homicide. So that was all done. So I thought, well, I've got this story idea and I've, you know, I want to try something new. No one had ever heard of forensic anthropology back then. So I thought, well, maybe I can introduce my science to a broader audience. So Mm. I decided to give it a shot. And Deja Dad was the result of that effort. It's amazing. I just find, you know, you've been so successful in both of these paths and I just find that really fascinating. And do you feel like, because they are, I guess, you know, they're, they're very different, I guess, in terms of 
the side of your brain you're using, you know, that very scientific, factual, and then, you know, you go over to that creative. Do they nourish each other? Do you find they cross over at all? Tell me how this works with your brain. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I think the type of book I write, at least, I write a thriller, I write a good old-fashioned murder mystery, but it's science-driven, the solution. Mm -hmm. So I bring in the science. Um, I think one of the mistakes that uh, professors make or scientists make when they try to write fiction is they love their field. They love, you know, psychology or, or physics or whatever. So they put too much of it in the book. So if you're going to put um, science into modern commercial fiction, at least, you got to keep it brief. You've got to keep it, I think, accurate because the reader likes to think they've learned something and Mm. they will have if they read my books. And you've got to keep it jargon free. You can't rely on all this special terminology we use amongst each other as, you know, as as experts. So um, those are kind of the, the, and you got to keep it fresh. You can't use the same science book after book after book. People don't want to read about bones after bones after bones. (laughs) So in each, you know, this is number 20, the bone code. So in each of the books, I've brought in a different um, aspect of forensic science to kind of drive the solution to the the mystery. Mm, I was going to say that was a challenge, but as a reader, you know, and I don't, I'm not a scientist. I did find that I think you really got the sweet spot in terms of, I felt like I was learning. I knew that you must have had such a great knowledge of this stuff because you could tell that it was, you know, really deep, but it was just enough for the reader to go, yep, I sort of understand what's going on. I understand, you know, the very basic science because at the end of the day it's a thriller and it's it's a crime novel and that's that's why we're reading it. So I think um I think that balance was really, really good. Oh good. Thank you. Thank you. Now you've written a number of these books because this is a series, as you mentioned. Now, how do you take a character like Temperance across a series, ensuring that she she grows and learns over time? Because probably when you started writing it, you didn't know that there was going to be so many books after that. So how do you keep developing a character to keep her fresh, but then keeping the core of her the same in 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 some essence? Well, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to keep her fresh. Um, but, but that core is there, but it's evolving and it's growing and her social relationships are growing and they can't just be, well, I suppose it could. She could be happily married in, in every book, but I think it makes it more interesting if she's got things going on in her social life. Um, one, of the, one of the problems you have with a continuing character series is how do you age that person? Mm-hmm. Do you age them in real time? Um, I've always been a little vague about her age. She's, we know in the first book, she's seen 40 come and go. So she's older than that, but she certainly, that was 20, that came out in, well, I started it in 1994. Wow. So, you know, she'd be a bit older by this time. (laughs) You can take, you can do it either way. Some authors do age their characters in real time, Um, or you can take the literary license to just kind of keep her, hold her. Uh, at a certain rough spot, sweet spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how I, I found her, actually. I, I found her in that sort of age. I, I thought she was around the 40s, which is interesting because that was 20 years ago when you wrote that. But I, I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We, we don't mind as readers. That's what you have a creative license for. I think that's good. But, you know, also her relationship in this one is quite interesting. Can you tell me about the dynamics of this relationship? I quite liked the, uh, the dynamics between the two. Yeah, I don't want to give too much away, no. but uh, Ryan is not very much present 
isn't in this one, um, but she and Ryan are in a pretty good place now. Um, they actually, he had proposed to her several books back, which was shocking to her. She's not ready for that. <laughs> she got stung by her ex cheating on her. So she's been single for a while. So she's not ready for a marriage commitment, but she did agree to, to live together. So she sold her condo in uh, Sans Graville in Montreal and she and Ryan bought a place together, a high rise, very different, very modern. And she renovated the annex where she lives in, in Charlotte. So um, they still have this long range geographic relationship and she goes back and forth and he goes back and forth. And he's retired uh, from being a, a detective with the, with the provincial police and he's now in private practice as an investigator. So he goes back and forth, she goes back and forth. So it's, it's com c'est compliqué, as we were saying. <laughs> I actually really liked it. And I liked that, you know, your female protagonist, she she doesn't conform to stereotypes when it comes to this relationship. You know, I quite liked that because it makes her a really, you know, vulnerable but believable character. You know, she's got this scientific brilliance but then she's got this kind of personal life that she hasn't quite worked out yet but I think that's great I think that's very human good I wanted her to be an approachable not I didn't want her to be perfect you know mm. so she's 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 got flaws she's a recovering alcoholic um you know she does have these rough patches in her social relationships so yeah she's got a good sense of humor about herself though I think so yeah I really liked her attitude it was good now, I want to ask you about research. So obviously, you know, you said you have taken different parts of what you know from, you know, being a scientist in each of your books. So that would, I'm assuming, you know, constitute a little bit of research. Plus, you know, we had the, the, the death masks in the beginning of this book. So how much research do you do for each book or for this book particularly compared to the knowledge that you sort of already possess because you're in that field? I do constant research. I'll do a big chunk if I decide, okay, in this book, I'm going to use blood spatter pattern analysis or whatever. I didn't, but that was featured into one of the early books. Um, I will, I'm lucky. I, I've worked for years in a combined crime lab and medical legal lab. So I don't know anything about, or I don't know a lot about blood spatter pattern analysis, but I know people who do it. So I could walk down the corridor and I could ask our blood pattern spatter pattern analysis <laughs> analyst. Yeah. Um, and he would, he or she would explain it, whether it's that or, you know, mitochondrial DNA and cat hair or, you know, fire and arson and, or the bomb squad or whatever. So I was really lucky. So I do constant research, both in person and online. And as I'm writing then, um, what, everything. I research everything. I'll, I'll come across, you know, I'm right now for the next book, writing a scene in one of our state parks here in North Carolina. <clears throat> so I'll get online and I'll research, you know, how big is the lake and what road do you take to get there? Or, you know, every little thing as I go along. Um, um, and, and also I'm, the book I'm writing is going to draw on some of the earlier books. <laughs> well, those were written 10 and 15 years ago. So I'm constantly thinking, what baseball player did Joe Hawkins have sitting on his desk? You know, was it Joe DiMaggio? Was it Hank Aaron? Who, you know, so yes, constantly I'm going out there and looking for answers. Thank goodness for the internet. It must make yeah. the research a little easier. <laughs> yes, if anyone ever confiscated my computer, though, the things I have on it that I've researched are a little sketchy. 
<laughs> yeah, I hear that from crime writers particularly. <laughs> now, I'm really interested in so scientific advancement. You know, it, it's quite rapid, I think. And so in the 20 years that you've been writing, you know, this series, how has that impacted your book with something that might have been scientifically relevant sort of 20 years ago? And has that changed and does that make you change the story? I'm really interested how you how you balance that or they're chronological so it doesn't matter and that's sort of meant to happen. Well, it does matter. Um, you know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been writing very much about DNA. Or if I did, I would have been writing as if this is a breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Well, now DNA is, is you know, we all know what DNA is. So it's not like, ooh, I never heard of that kind of thing, <laughs> which is what I look for, something that the reader maybe wasn't aware of. That's certainly the biggest gorilla in, in, in the forensic science room. Um, but yeah, I, I, I go to our professional meetings. I read our professional journals. I talk with colleagues reg- every week regularly. So I'm constantly looking for new ideas of new, new science to use. And then once I get that first tickle of interest, um, like human genome edi- editing, then I go out and then I, I do the deep research. It'd be very, very interesting because, as you said, 20 years ago, DNA was quite new. And imagine in 10 or 15 years now in the future what that means for the editing of the DNA. It'd be very interesting to see where that has taken us, wouldn't it? It's, it yes, yes. And those are some of the points I bring up in this book. And it's funny, I'll, something I'll put in that I think, ah, oh, this is this is new. People will, like this book talks about vaccine production and mm. Uh, mRNA vaccines. Well, now we've all heard about that in the news. Subsequently, <laughs> this book touches on pandemics and it was written pre pandemic yes. And then we have a COVID pandemic. So yeah, it's kind of <laughs> it hard is. to stay. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. And I really think, you know, when you talked about the pandemic and obviously I knew that you, you'd written it before that, how did that feel when we were in a real pandemic? Did you sort of panic and think, oh, no one's going to want to read about a pandemic or did you think the opposite? Yeah, you wonder about that. And then, uh, as I said, I'm on the next book now. Do What do you do? And every author's facing this. Do mm. we ignore it? that in the story? <laughs> do we just give lip, lip service to it and move on? Do we yeah. ignore it and just set our book in a post-pandemic world and get on with it. So it is a conscious decision I think authors are having to make. Mm, it seems like you've been making predictions. I wonder what predictions you're making in this next book. We'll read it for what's going to happen in the future, which is a bit terrifying. <laughs> now, you are obviously an accomplished writer, New York bestseller, and you know, you've written many books in the last 20 years. I want to know how your writing process has changed or if it has changed. Did you find the perfect way to write a book the first time you wrote it or has it evolved over the time and keeps on evolving? Um, It's evolved some. Uh, Of course, when I wrote the first book, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I have no training in creative writing. So I did a lot of outlining and um, created my characters, created a complete outline for the whole, whatever, 36 chapters, whatever. Um, I don't do that as much anymore. I do keep separate. I do start an outline. Mm -hmm. And um, I outline the beginning of the book now, but not the whole book. I know how I'm starting. I know my setting. I know my characters because each book I have my core cast of characters, but then I bring in new ones in each, each story. Um, And I know how it's going to end, but I don't necessarily plot it out chapter by chapter by chapter. I do create an outline as I'm writing though, um, kind of 
postmortem, you know, when I finish the chapter, I summarize it and put it in an outline. So by the time I finish the book, I have, I have that outline and that's useful to me as I'm going along and going back and editing. Cause I, I, I write in a linear way. I write chapter one and chapter two and chapter three and chapter four. Um, unlike my daughter, for example, she writes according to her mood. If she's happy, she writes the love scene. If she's blue, she writes the death scene. I can't can't do that. (laughs) Um, My son is also a writer and he has, he actually has a big board and he puts up colored, he outlines it much like we did when we were breaking a story in the writer's room. Mm -hmm. He has color coded and he outlines his main story, his secondary story, his tertiary story. And he's got every chapter by chapter. And I don't do that either. (laughs) So, um, you know, they talk about um, pantsers and plotters. And um, I, you know, do you plot everything out or do you, do you go by the seat of your pants? And I guess I'm more of a pantser than a plotter. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. And what's really interesting is that you have a family of writers and you've all found your own way in which to do it, which I find fascinating because everyone yeah. has a different way of doing it. And it seems to me you're sort of in the middle, like you might be more pantser, but you do have that sort of little planning you know, beforehand and as you go. Yeah. So, yeah, I find and that it's a feedback loop, even though I write, you know, chapter one, chapter two, if I'm in chapter seven and I suddenly get an idea or something I'm writing or researching triggers an idea, I'll go back and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll modify. So it is a, a feedback loop in that sense. Yeah, no, that is fascinating. Now I want to ask about, you know, as a producer on the hit Fox TV series bones, I mean, I'm sure everyone's familiar with this series. What was your role in this as producer in this series? Primarily I worked with the writers Um, I did write episodes, um, but I read every single one of our 246 scripts for every single episode. Yeah, we're still the longest running scripted drama in the history of the Fox Network. That's amazing. Yeah, we went 12 seasons. That's a long time. So and then uh, periodically I live on the East Coast. And of course, we were shooting in L.A. primarily on the West Coast. So it's a long time. But I would get out there as as often as possible. And um, when you write a script, you have to be there. You have to be on set or location for each episode took about two weeks to shoot. So I would be there for the for the whole episode. So um, I was quite involved in it. Um, I, people often ask, did you have control? And no, I did not have control, <laughs> but they genuinely did. Um, want and consider my input mm-hmm. and I'm interested because you have to be there for the two weeks of shooting is that so you can make changes on the fly when things change or why why yeah. is your presence because the the actors might have questions mm-hmm. um or um something might happen that you've got to do a quick rewrite mm-hmm. or something just isn't working and you've got to do a quick quick rewrite mm, that's fascinating do you ever look back you probably do on all your achievements, you know, script writing for this amazing TV series. And then your first book where you said you had nothing, you didn't really know what you were doing. And this became this incredible best-selling novel and a professor. Do you think, do you look back and think, wow, how did, how did I do this? Or was it just all sort of hard work and just kind of evolved, I guess. Uh, Our, our showrunner Hart Hansen said to me, I think we were into our, I don't know, maybe our fourth season or third. He said, why don't you write, an episode. And I said, I don't know how to write a screenplay. And he said, well, you didn't know how to write a novel. And that worked out. So I thought, (laughs) 
Okay, you're right. So, <laughs> you know, what were the main, what were the main differences for you in terms of writing a script and then writing a novel? So, what did you bring to each of them from your experiences, and what was completely different and threw you off? Well, what was completely different is, and it didn't throw me off, I really enjoyed it, but what was completely different is when you write a TV episode, at least for our show, you do something called breaking the story and you go into the writer's room and um, with the other writers and for a week or you know, two, whatever it takes, you brainstorm, you just throw out ideas and there are these empty whiteboards uh, on the walls. And um, by the end of that week, you and and I, for I, you be given a suggestion by the showrunner. For example, the first episode I wrote was called "The Witch in the Wardrobe," and the only thing he suggested was we want you to get Angela and Hodgins together. They were apart at that point, mm-hmm. and we want to open with two bodies. You know, our show always opened with some yeah. messed up bodies. Fun. <laughs> That's it. That's the only direction wow. I had. So, yeah, so um, you go into the writer's room and you just throw out ideas. Well, why don't we have the body, you know, discovered and squashed in the high school bleachers? Or why don't we have the body this or that or the other? Then um, one thing that's, so that's one thing different. And I enjoyed that a lot. It was very stimulating not to just be the, you know, the classic lone writer all by yourself at your keyboard. <laughs> Um, the other thing, then, then you have to pitch it to the showrunner and it has to be a, the idea and it has to be approved. Then you have to write a very detailed outline, pitch that to the, uh, the showrunner, and that has to be approved. And then, and then you actually write the script. And then they change everything, which I wasn't <laughs> used to either. But that's for you know, lots of reasons. It could be financial. It could be you know, one actor, one of our interns wasn't available or what, you know, lots of reasons that are beyond the writer's control. That is really interesting and I think from a process perspective too because there seem to be so many moving parts, whereas I know when you're writing it, it becomes collaborative in the end when you have your editors and publishers, et cetera. But there's a lot of time you're working solo, but when you're writing on a TV series, it's constant yeah. collaboration and, and constantly moving parts. So I think you have to, I guess, be quite flexible in that way. You do. And uh, another difference is with TV writing, it's almost all dialogue. Because you don't have to write description because the viewer sees that. They see the scene. They see what she's wearing. They, you know, so it's almost all, all dialogue. Mm, that is very. But it's similar in that you have, as I said earlier, you have your main story, which in our show would be the crime. You know, who's the body? Who's the murderer? And then you'd have your B story, which is something in the lives of your characters. And then you might have a C story, which is an arcing story that goes, you know, through multiple episodes so Mm -hmm. in that way the structure is similar to a novel Mm -hmm. yeah no I was very interested actually when I saw that you were the producer to see the differences between them I find it fascinating um, to hear about that script writing process Mm -hmm. now Kathy I ask this question to all the authors that come onto the podcast why do you write Oh my goodness. Um, well, I'm under contract. <laughs> I, have to, I just signed a new contract, so I have to produce two new books as part of it. But I really miss it when I'm away from it. I've noticed that uh, if I take, uh, you know, a month and I'm because I'm engaged in, in something else, I do miss writing. And I, I, so I write because I enjoy it, not every single minute of it, but uh, that's part of it. And when you say you don't enjoy every single minute of it, 
that's the challenging parts. How do you push through those challenging aspects of the writing process? You know, I think it's because of the way I wrote the first couple books. I was re, uh, teaching full time at university and flying between North Carolina and uh, Quebec. So I had to write in every free moment I had. It took two years to write the first book. Mm -hmm. And I would do it on vacations. I would do it during summer. I would do it, you know, on weekends. So if I had a free block of time, I, you know, I couldn't dance around doing other things. I had to be disciplined. And I think that's carried on in that if I have a deadline, um, I feel very disciplined in that I've even though I'd rather be down at the beach when I write at my beach house, um, my window in my office overlooks the, the beach. We're right on the beach and I'll see my kids and my grandkids, you know, heading down with their little flotation devices in their <laughs> swimsuits. And I'll think, huh, they're going to the beach and I'm sitting here, but um, I have to have the discipline to finish the book um, to deadline. I feel mm. anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I imagine discipline, probably comes from, you know, who you are as a person, but all that scientific training that would have to play into that too, right? Well, I'm sure it does. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure thinking as a scientist has helped me as a writer, be organized, be disciplined and thinking as a writer has probably helped me as a scientist, mm. observing and noticing things I might otherwise not, mm. not, no, not with regard to, to the case, but you know, the sound that a fly makes buzzing against the fluorescent light or something. I, I notice those things now because I may need to write about it and describe it accurately. Oh, that's fascinating. So how long do you think or would you like this series to keep going? Well, it's going to go at least 22 because I just signed this new contract. Yeah. So I'm busily at work on the new one, which is currently titled Book 21. <laughs> do you have a vision, though, for when, when it should end or do you just want to keep going with this, this ageless character? I don't know. 22 seems like it could be, could be a good number or at least <laughs> maybe take a break and do something yep. different for a while and then yep. come back. And then come back. Oh, that is fascinating. Readers seem to, to, to like the character Temperance Brennan and um, yeah. So for now I'm, and I still like her. So mm. she's a very likable character. I can see why she and the story resonates with readers. I mean, that's how I was reading it thinking, you know, how is this resonating with people? And it's, it's a very you know good story. It's, it's very knowledgeable. The research is really deep and the character is really likable. And, you know, I love a female protagonist, a strong, complicated female protagonist in my crime fiction. So I think it ticked all those boxes. Oh, good. Good. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for your time. I just loved The Bone Code. Like I just, just was saying, I love crime fiction. It's it's my favourite genre of choice. And uh, reading yours, um, I learned a lot about the writing process and then speaking to you. I'm just really fascinated about how all of these things come together for you, science and script writing and the novel. So I'm really looking forward to reading uh titled book 21 and book 22 i'm sure you'll think of um, much better titles than that when they come into the world but thank you so much i really appreciate your time um, i know you're a very busy person so thank you so much for spending um half an hour talking to me about this this brilliant book well thank you for inviting me